Welcome to the Global Hemophilia Report, a podcast led by science, curiosity, and storytelling. Produced by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media, and made possible by Sanofi. I'm Patrick James Lynch, your host and resident hemophilia patient, and this is episode 21 of the Global Hemophilia Report. Today's topic, sexual health and hemophilia. It's a big one, and we'll start with a story from Canadian physiotherapist Greg Blamey. He's one of the experts on our panel today, and frankly, his story had a big impact on me the first time I heard it. You'll hear it next, right after this quick word from Sanofi. Sanofi seeks to expand the idea of what's possible for the hemophilia community. Take a deeper look at the science behind hemophilia and an important connection between factor activity levels and potential activities at levelsmatter.com. The story that I will tell you is the story of one of my clients that prior to this instance with this particular patient, there was no attention being paid by myself nor anyone in my clinic to our patients sexual health needs uh, or questions. Uh, not only the patients, even people that they were that we routinely engage with, their partners, their loved ones, the people who would come to clinics with them. So there was no talk about it at all. And we had a client who had three successive iliopsoas muscle bleeds, large hip flexor muscle bleeds over a six month period. And we asked him after these psoas bleeds, after each one of them, what was the cause? What were you doing? What kinds of activities do you think you were doing that caused this bleed? He had no idea and he said that he didn't know. And we were suggesting that he restrict his activities to just activities of daily living. And therein, that statement, which is very familiar to all kinds of healthcare professionals, therein lied the problem. Because to many of us, myself included at the time, activities of daily living, what was in my head was eating bathing, dressing, going to work, driving your car, things like that. He was doing all those things. And he said, I'm, it's all I'm doing is my activities of daily living. And we thought he was probably deliberately leaving something out. We had a long history of people playing sports that we didn't recommend as an example, but they would do it anyway. And so eventually after the third bleed, when we were at a crisis point and if things didn't turn around, we were going to have permanent disability. I went into his hospital room and I shut the door and I said, there's no judgment here. I'm here to help and I need to know what was causing these bleeds. And he swore up and down that he had been truthful. He acknowledged, he says, I know that I haven't always been in the past, but I'm telling you, Greg, that I have told you everything. I've been completely honest. And I said, maybe we should work backwards then. Let's start with this most recent bleed. When did you start to notice symptoms? And he said that he woke up about three or four in the morning with pain and, and symptoms. And I said, okay, you'd been asleep up to that point. And he said, yeah. I said, then what did you do the night before? And he detailed a very banal evening. He got home from work. He had dinner. They watched some television. He said, and that was really all I did last night. And I said, that's it. That's all that you did. Nothing else. And he said, my girlfriend and I had sex that night. And, and literally, I stopped. There was a pause in the conversation because what was going in my head was, of course, that's the missing piece. There's the physical, there's the physical activity that I've been looking for that I couldn't find. 
in your history of all these bleeds? And I said, do you mind telling me a little bit more detail about what you mean when you say that? And then long story short, what he detailed was the fact that not a couple times a week, not three or four times a week, every night of the week, this was what he and his girlfriend did before they went to sleep. And it was not, it was very vigorous. And then I started to think, then the phrase that kept flashing in my head was activities of daily living, activities of daily living. Oh my God, you do this on a daily, this is an activity, you do it daily and you're living. This, when you said to me that you were just doing your activities of daily living, you were telling me the truth. I made an assumption. My assumption was wrong. And as a result, I could have stopped this after the first bleed. And now you've had three. And, and it changed how I practice from that moment on. And my list, if you like, in my head of what activities of daily living include grew tenfold that day because I opened my thinking up to understanding that it's, there is no list of activities of daily living. Everybody has their own list of activities of daily living. And it's up to me to ask people what's on that list. What's on your list? Cause it's probably not the same as what's on mine. That's the story, be honest. And, and it, what it led to was a distinct improvement with that patient, but it led to a lot of things that it helped a lot of people. Thank you, Greg, for that powerful story. To hear similarly powerful insights and stories, let's meet today's panel. Good morning. I'm Maureen Baldwin. I'm a physician and OBGYN, and I have a fellowship training in complex family planning, which is a two-year fellowship following an OBGYN residency, which is four years long. Primarily, I take care of women and girls. I also have a practice focus designation in pediatric and adolescent gynecology. And my practice right now is mainly made up of teenage girls having menstrual problems. I, as an OBGYN, I talk to couples and families all the time about sexual and reproductive health. And I am located in Portland, Oregon, on the West Coast of the United States. My name is Greg Blamey. I'm a physiotherapist in Canadian lingo and a physical therapist in America, American United States lingo. I work at the Adult Inherited Bleeding Disorders Clinic in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. And I've been with the Bleeding Disorders Program here for close to 30 years now, working primarily as a clinician, but also as an educator within the clinical sphere, as well as with the University of Manitoba. Uh, although my clinical experience has been entirely within uh, a country that has access to comprehensive care and high-level uh, medical management of bleeding disorders, I've done extensive work with the World Federation of Hemophilia primarily, uh, doing teaching and workshops in countries around the world with developing economies or developing healthcare systems. My name's William McKeown, and I'm a patient with severe hemophilia A. So I live in Northern Ireland. I'm based quite close to Belfast. I'm involved with a number of patient organisations, including Hemophilia Northern Ireland, the UK Hemophilia Society, the European Hemophilia Consortium, where I'm a member of their youth committee. Professionally, I am a physician. I specialise in care of the elderly and stroke medicine. So at the present time, I'm based at the Ulster Hospital in Belfast, and I've really specific interest in frailty, multi-morbidity, and how people can age well as they get older. Hello, my name is Patrick James Lynch, and while I am executive producer of the Global Hemophilia Report, my role today is to serve as a patient representative. Like William, I'm a person with hemophilia, but I'm really here to focus on the patient role and wear that hat 
And for me, I it was actually a conversation with Greg on a, a sister podcast, the Bloodstream podcast. This idea of we as the clinicians here speak about offering comprehensive integrated care, and yet this area of sexual health is so often almost entirely left behind. So I'm coming to this conversation today having anticipated, I think, the next deeper discussion about sexual health, its role in the clinic, what we understand about it as it relates to hemophilia across genders, across lifespans, across healthcare systems internationally. I'm excited now to be in this conversation with you all. That's right. I'm doing double duty today. So you'll hear my voice here as the host and as one of the contributors to today's conversation, which we will get back to right after this short message from our featured advertiser. Hemophilia severity is determined by factor activity levels, a measurement of how much factor you have in your blood at time of diagnosis. The more factor you have in your body over time, the better your bleed protection is, which is why many people with hemophilia choose to treat prophylactically. Your doctor can perform measurements to evaluate the factor activity levels in your blood, Learn more about the importance of factor activity levels by talking to your doctor and visiting levelsmatter.com. Welcome back. Now, a question for our panel to kick us off. What is the definition of sexual health? What is that exactly? And why are we addressing it in the context of good hemophilia care and management? My definition of that is that it's a very broad umbrella term that includes or incorporates many things underneath it because there are so many parts to it that speak to expertise that exists in multiple fields of, of study or endeavor or clinical management. So certainly there are medical factors that involve just the pure functioning of the human body and, and the aspects of the human body that are involved in sexual health and sexuality, engaging in sexual activity. But there is a huge psycho-emotional component to it. And as a physical therapist, the, the entry point for me into this arena was really more with what I would call sexuality as opposed to sexual health, which was the physical expression of how people engage in or address their own sexual needs, desires. I think largely perhaps from what I'll call benign neglect, an area that was just not addressed historically within our comprehensive care clinic. Yeah, I think Greg's articulated that. For, for me, sexual health is about being able to express your sexuality free from risk and free from limitation. And there are risks, unfortunately, out there. Um, STIs, coercion, um, lack of consent. And there are also limitations. And those are particularly prominent for people with bleeding disorders that are poorly managed per physical health, but also per mental health. I think the second part of your question was very interesting. What has stopped us addressing this up until now? And I think there is just a lot of stigma and a lot of discomfort about talking about these issues. And so we really need to think moving forward, how to normalize conversations about sexual health if we're going to begin to tackle some of the issues that people with bleeding disorders are facing in their sex lives. In, in um, reproductive health, our, our norm is to assume that people have sex. Our norm is to assume that pregnancy is the default. It's, we don't talk about contraception. Our assumption is that people want to engage in relationships around sex. And so relationship building is an important part of the discussion about 
about intercourse and sexual health. And and our assumption is also that people don't just have intercourse, that sexual health is a broader term than heterosexual sex. And other than thinking about worrying about knee injuries during sex for someone with hemophilia, is to is to think about how people with chronic medical conditions receive routine health care and the kind of normative health care that we'd be talking about with someone who is just coming in for a teen visit, for example, who didn't have um, any other health conditions. And I think that uh, what I observe in medical care is that people with chronic medical conditions miss out on routine discussions like this. And so I think that's an important thing to carry through our discussion. Just the few minutes that we've been talking already has made clear to me that I didn't even really understand what the term meant and what it didn't mean and the difference between sexuality and sexual health. So just this brief conversation has already highlighted areas of my own ignorance as someone interested in the topic, which I think if we extrapolate from that probably says a lot about what average patients and their loved ones know and think about as it relates to sexual health. As someone with hemophilia, and especially in formative years growing up, going through puberty, trying to understand what's happening to my body and hormones and what's happening to people around me, I often felt some degree of othered or ostracized or different from my peers to begin with because of hemophilia and inhibitors and missing out on so many. And then layer on top of it, now I'm moving into this whole other scary, bizarre, phase of my life. And from a medical perspective, the people I feel most comfortable speaking to openly about the nuances of what's going on with me as it relates to my body and my health are my bleeding disorder providers. How much of sexual health is the responsibility of the treatment center and where should it go elsewhere? And I don't have a good answer to that. I'm just very intrigued by this discussion. And speaking of responsibility... How much of this issue of sexual health and hemophilia ought to be dealt with by clinicians inside a hemophilia treatment center as opposed to by clinicians elsewhere in a patient's life? Yeah, I think the question is, who's better to give the messages of primary care? Someone who knows the patient really well, such as in their medical home at the hemophilia treatment center, or is it the sort of more less well-known provider who's just doing a script of a checklist of items that we should be covering during primary care? And I I love this question because I think that I don't know how I fall on it, to be honest. I do know that when I'm doing obstetric care and I see a patient who I haven't met before, I do a better job of going through the itemized list of the things we're supposed to cover at each visit. Then when I know somebody really well, I end up chatting with them more and I may not cover everything that I really should be covering. I think that there really needs to be a systematic approach to making sure that the topics are covered. either at an HTC by someone who knows the patient well, who's going to receive it better from someone they know, but to make sure that we're actually meeting those those items. So I suppose we we have a slightly different understanding of primary care in the United Kingdom. So primary care would typically refer to a family practitioner, and then we just talk about secondary care. So that would include things like the comprehensive hemophilia care center, but also obviously gynae or gender urinary medicine clinics because people's sexual health can be poor for so many different reasons. So yes, it can be joint health, but it can also be to do with heavy menstrual bleedings. It can be to do with poor mental health. It can be to do with poor cardiovascular health and erectile dysfunctions. The answer in appropriate care is going to be very tailored to the individual. 
speaking as a patient, who do, who do I want to talk about these intensely personal things with? I probably would feel happier speaking with somebody at my hemophilia care center who I've known my whole life. But that's a very personal thing, isn't it? Because for others, they may want to speak to somebody who they are never, ever going to see again. So that's a very, that's a very hard question to answer. I don't think the same answer could be given for every patient, but I do think probably the Haemophilia Care Centre is a good first port of call of this because haemophilia can have a significant bearing. Uh, and often our haemophilia centres have good links with obstetrics and gynaecology and they have good links with psychology because of uh, the nature of our condition uh, and our past history as a patient cohort who has suffered a lot of psychological trauma over the years already. I think that the role for the comprehensive care team in this sphere is openness. Being open and making sure that patients have permission, so to speak, explicit um, permission to ask questions around this aspect of their health if they wish. And the other point is that patients should be talking to who they feel is they're most comfortable with. I think the comprehensive care teams need to be careful with the messaging that we send intended and unintended when it comes to how we intersect with primary care. If a patient appears at clinic and is complaining of dental pain, it is an absolute right off the bat, go to see your dentist. Do you have a dentist? We can set you up with a dentist. And because that's, I think, a lane that everybody is so comfortable with, that engagement in what is helping to direct a person's primary care needs to extend to every sphere of their health. It can't just be things that we're familiar with or that we're used to. Things like sending somebody to a hepatologist if they have liver issues. We need to make sure that we are there and that we have provided permission for patients to bring these questions up if they wish. And if they help finding somebody to take to bring it up with, then we should be facilitating that as well, a particular patient, to engage with the person that they really need to or that they feel most comfortable. I think Greg's point about openness is spot on and the points made about it's not going to be the same for every patient. I also feel like that is spot on. But there's framing that I heard our senior advisor, Dr. Dean McKelly, make about this, which I think philosophically is important to consider. Are we offering comprehensive care for hemophilia and bleeding disorders management, or are we offering holistic, integrated care for a person with a bleeding disorder. And it's not just a semantic difference. Here in the United States, for years, there's been discussion about what's the future of the hemophilia treatment center model and things like our 340B programs have enabled revenue from factor sales to come back to help the clinic. And that's changed drastically already and will continue to shift as the treatment landscape shifts. So I think it's up to our treatment centers to decide who are we? What are we offering? This is complex. I do think Greg's last point there about openness feels to me like such a bottom line. And I think that's important. I I doubt I'm alone there. Dr. Baldwin, a follow-up for you. Do you think that this issue is different beginning in adolescence for females who routinely see a gynecologist? Yeah, I think in general, the onset of having sexual intimacy for girls and teens and young women is the burden is really on them to think about contraception. And so they are having those conversations pretty regularly, especially if they've entered into having a menstrual management plan. 
But generally, sometimes they don't even touch the healthcare system for contraception or, or family planning or gynecology health until they're in their early 20s. But I do think that they're thinking about how to manage sex in a different way because they're thinking about pregnancy risk and thinking about their own health in that way a little bit differently. Let's transition now to talk about current best practices and the standards for addressing sexual health in hemophilia clinics. Let's start with Dr. McKeown. This is discussed in the WFH Hemophilia Comprehensive Care Guidelines and makes two recommendations. Number one, we should be routinely assessing sexual health. Number two, we should be managing the comorbidities with a multidisciplinary approach, which includes psychosocial care. I don't think they make clear exactly how they are to be applied. Um, and that lack of certainty about application probably is a barrier to uh, physicians and healthcare professionals uh, assessing for these things and dealing with these things. So I think we need more data about how well these standards are upheld to begin with. And we need to know what are the barriers to these standards being fulfilled. The, the treatment guidelines do lay out some specifics about best practices with respect to sexual health. I think if I go one step before the, the, the treatment guidelines, I think best practices starts with a comprehensive care clinic sitting down as a team and talking about this amongst themselves and making sure that they are comfortable with this particular topic. And I think a self-assessment of the healthcare providers is important. And I think this is one of those topics that it's okay to acknowledge that you are, you either have deficiencies, you have things you don't know, and it's really, it's okay to be uncomfortable. But what needs to happen is that the team has to come up with a strategy as to who's going to be the person to open this door. And that doesn't have to be the person who deals with every single issue. But it, when we sit down as a comprehensive care team, obviously the musculoskeletal assessment is handled by myself. Obviously the medical assessment is handled by the hematologist. But this is an area where I think that the initial assessment can be handled by anybody on the team. And then depending on what the patient or the family member brings up, that helps to then direct which way the conversation goes and to which, which lane it fits or whether we're looking at engaging somebody outside of the comprehensive care team. But I think best practices start with the team having a very honest discussion with each other as to how this particular topic, which is huge and hugely important, is going to be addressed at clinic. I think sexual health, we systematically bring up starting at age 14 alone with the patient or in private away from their parents. And in the way that I usually ask that question is I usually bring it up in terms of intimate relationships. I say something like, have you have you had any intimate relationships? And a lot of times kids don't always know what the word intimate means. But then I follow it up with, are you getting close to somebody else? Are you interested sexually in anyone? And, and then usually it's like a run fight or flight <laughs> reaction. But I'd like to just openly say something because then it gives them the opportunity to know that later if they have a question that they can come to us confidentially. I maybe should have started with this question, but where do these standards and practices even come from? How are they developed? Who's developing them? And where are they disseminated? It's a great question, honestly. And I, I want to first go back to something that I mentioned earlier, that permission for patients or their family members to bring these topics up. Permission is a two-way street. And so I could be treating a, a patient of any age with a male patient with an elbow bleed or after an elbow bleed that 
I want to ask or I want to know if this injury is having an impact not only on physical functioning, but I want to know if that's having any disruption to their sexual health. So I will ask permission for that. I have to receive that permission before I go further. And I think that it's important to remember that, that we want patients to feel really open bringing this up with us. But if we're the ones that want to initiate that conversation, that that I think that permission and receiving it is important. Is it okay for me to ask you this? And I usually ask, is this elbow bleed and the problems you're having with your arm, is it impacting masturbation? Is it impacting your ability to engage in sexual intercourse or sexual relations or your enjoyment of your sex life in any way? And the patients, some will want to discuss it and some will not. But I think that it's important for me to get that A-OK before I go forward. Um, in terms of tools that we use, the some of the research that I've done and the publications that I've been involved in have to do with communication tools for people who are on the treatment side of the equation. And some tools that we gained access to from a sexual health center, there are two of them. One's called the Head Heart Body Tool, and the other is the Check-In Affirm Clarify Answer Tool. And I find that both of those are really useful in different instances. The check-in, affirm, clarify answer is really to engage on any question that might resolve, that might exist around sexual health. And the check-in part is checking in about your own attitudes about the question that was just asked before you say anything to really just take a moment to reflect on how you feel about what you were just asked. The affirm is just clarifying the question the patient or the person has asked you. The the clarification is to clarify that you completely understand the question and you've affirmed that you're able to talk about it and you're allowed to provide an answer. And then the answer really is, if you have expertise that addresses it, do so. If you don't, say so and ask if you would be, if the person would be interested in, in you providing them with some help to find an answer to that question if you can't actually provide it. And then the head, heart, body tool really has to do with a particular activity. It's more physical. If a patient says to me that they've had a recent knee bleed and a recent ankle bleed and they want to get back into having sexual intercourse with their partner, is it safe for them to do so? I'll ask them, well, what does your head tell you? What does your heart tell you? What does your body tell you? What are your thoughts about doing this right now? What are your feelings about doing it right now? And do you feel like your body, is your body really ready for this right now? And if the answer to any of those is no, or there's a red flag or a yellow light or a red light put up, depending how you want to frame it, then that's the entry point into more discussions. I would say if, if a team is looking for tools, there are experts who deal as their primary work with sexual health and sexuality. And those are great places to go to see if they have some simple tools that you can then apply within a comprehensive care framework in bleeding disorders. We're speaking with my, my patient hat on now. I have to say, because some of these issues are so sensitive and to patients, we might need to be asked for permission, not just once, but several times. And so my message to healthcare professionals would be actually don't give up offering the opportunity to patients who find this difficult. We were talking about the global perspective. In some countries, these issues are very difficult to talk about. So it may be the case in other parts of the world where there is even more stigma around these issues than there are UK, Canada, the United States. Those patients may need a lot of space to bring these things to their healthcare professionals. I agree with William's point entirely. The needing to get that permission slip numerous times can be very important. While I did not grow up in a religious household, I took to religion as a young person on my own. And that 
weighed very heavily into my identity or, or relationship to my sexual health, to sexuality. Greg, hearing you say, I'll ask someone if they're having an elbow thing. I know hopefully <laughs> how is that affecting activities of daily life? Is that affecting masturbation? That would have been hearing that from a provider as a young person, especially not exclusively, but as a young person, especially would have been such a permission slip to talk about something that I probably just thought was totally off the table while I was here. I really appreciate the specificity of that. And I agree with William's comment. And so as, as providers, I do think it is the provider's responsibility to, to stay committed, as was previously said. Do you all think that this guidance and this approach of giving the permission slip, giving it numerous times, do you think it's at all different depending on the severity of the bleeding disorder? And does it differ for women and girls? Thanks for the question. I think that across the board, whether someone has a bleeding disorder or not, for girls and women, the conversation about sexual health is almost always focused on the potential for pregnancy. And it gets very focused on fertility very quickly and less about quality of life. I'm really curious to understand for men and boys with hemophilia, how much the conversation, especially in the severe cases, how much the conversation gets focused on don't have a family, don't get someone pregnant, and the fear of having potentially a, an affected child. So maybe I'm switching the conversation, but I, as I sit here, I keep thinking about what the messaging must be for men and boys who have severe disease. I'll comment on that quickly to say my mom, oh, I say this with love and I may have shared this before, I don't call, said to me only even a few years ago, would you consider one of these procedures where they can, and I'm speaking out of school here, but spin your sperm or whatever and increase the likelihood that you'll have a male child so that your daughter will be unaffected. And my mom's making that comment from a wonderful place. And I know that. I received it, however, and the unintended consequence was that it made me feel a little less than, right? Like on somehow, but I have this thing and I have it in a severe form, you know this, and I'm doing well in life. It's also now the 2020s and we're talking about a daughter who may or may not have it. And if she does, it will most likely be mild and will be that much further along. So what's the fear there? What are you, what are you saying? But just a few years ago, my registered nurse mother who raised me with severe hemophilia and inhibitors and knows where we are and where we are not, she still had this idea that a female offspring from me would be problematic. And as now the father of a two and a half year old with mild hemophilia, who's needed a surgery already in which we've had to manage her hemophilia, I wouldn't have done a thing different. I'm not concerned at all about the fact that she has hemophilia. But even just a few years ago, my mother you know, making that comment was like, it was a moment for me. It was a real moment for me. and. I'm glad it did not influence my decision-making, to be quite frank, but I was surprised I even had to face it at that time. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And certainly, Patrick, it's something I've thought about as well. Do I want to pass on my defective genes? And I suppose it depends on somebody's experience. I can appreciate a well-meaning parent who comes from a family background where hemophilia has been devastating or bleeding disorder has been devastating. Taking that approach... And I think we have to answer that query by saying, actually, people with bleeding disorders now can live totally full and totally fulfilling lives. And this shouldn't affect our reproductive decisions and prospects for your daughter and for your 
grandsons and granddaughters are excellent. And that's the message we should be passing on rather than numbering around with this baggage from the past that says you can't live a full life with hemophilia. What we are learning is that there is such a broad spectrum of human endeavor and engagement that we have to recognize that not only hemophilia care, but probably health care and many other things within life in general have over the years, first of all, been heteronormative. And as a member of an LGBTQ plus community, I am maybe more sensitive to that across my lifespan than just within my professional engagement. But when it comes to things like how we talk about family planning historically versus now, you have to be really careful about how you say things like that now to patients who are a young gay man, a, a, a non-binary individual who there's so many people and so many layers to humanity and what interests us and where we feel we fit in that I just think it really comes back to, again, trying to use the most inclusive language possible and always tailoring our message. It's funny. It's just another interpretation of individualized care. Yes. Inclusive language and inclusive treatment of people is crucial. On our next episode of the Global Hemophilia Report, we're going to pay special attention to the LGBTQ plus community who are living with hemophilia. But right now, we'd at least like to touch on sexual health as it relates to the LGBTQ plus community. And we will do just that right after one more break. Hemophilia severity is determined by factor activity levels, a measurement of how much factor you have in your blood at time of diagnosis. The more factor you have in your body over time, the better your bleed protection is, which is why many people with hemophilia choose to treat prophylactically. Your doctor can perform measurements to evaluate the factor activity levels in your blood. Learn more about the importance of factor activity levels by talking to your doctor and visiting levelsmatter.com. When we're dealing with members of different communities within the overall human community, I think, again, let's just, I'll answer this from the, I guess, the assumption that that permission to discuss it, the interest that the patient has or that the people who are with the patient, that they've expressed an interest in engaging with us on this. I think what we need to first do is clarify what is the question. Do you have questions? Because if their question really does seem to revolve around family planning, as a physiotherapist, I'm going to clarify the question, but then admit that I'm not the right person. I don't have the answers to address the question you're asking, but may I help you find the right person to address that with you? And so if you're dealing with anybody, I think that permission piece is there. But as far as the, I'll just say LGBTQ plus community is concerned, for example, I think that what we need to do is ask them or clarify whether there are issues for them that are touching on this sexual health question that they're asking that are more related to their community. Because if we don't, then we run the risk of taking the answer in a direction that does not address what the person really wanted to know. I think it's important. I, I love that Greg's bringing up, ask the patient if they're wanting to talk about a topic, because I think that's just such a good practice. And the beginning of the shared decision-making model of discussion, which I think the hemophilic community has really brought on full force to use that model in communication with patients. One question we use in sexual and reproductive health and in my sphere is asking patients about whether uh, they want to talk about their future um, fertility. 
and asking them if they're interested in wanting to become pregnant. And I think that question seems like it should only be for someone who is sexually active and female and heterosexual, but it shouldn't. It should be for everyone because a young gay man might be with hemophilia, might be wondering, how am I going to have a fulfilling life with a family that I want, knowing what's possible and knowing what the options are, what the pros and cons of different options are to be able to live a full life. And fertility is a different topic than sexual health broadly, but it really does go hand in hand. And we forget that really sexual health is mostly about intimacy and intimacy is about relationships, is about families, isn't about your long-term creation of a life together. So I think it really does all go together. I think if we're, if people are familiar with the probe study, the researchers involved in probe would say to you that the answer to your question is a resounding yes. That when the questions on the probe study that that revolve around sexual health and sexuality are answered and asked and answered, that there is a significant fear of two things: of causing a bleed when engaged in sexual activity, and of pain. And the fear revolving those two entities is in many instances, I would say, paralyzing for people in terms of engaging in enjoyment of their sexuality and their sexual health. I think that there is definitely fear that we have been able to identify through research studies that are ongoing, but certainly my own clinical experience as well, I would say that absolutely that's one of the main questions that I get. It could be the potential for causing a new bleed if they're involved in sexual activity. And more frequently, it's re-bleeding for an injury that may have happened already that they're wanting to carry on and engage with their routines as far as sexual health is concerned, but but they feel disrupted and they don't want to spark a re-injury. And then there's also nothing to do with bleeds. Our bodies change as we age, but sexual health, although our interests may vary and the way we express it may vary across our lifespan for lots of reasons, I get lots of different kinds of questions from my older patients who also feel, if we talked a little bit before about what you might in some ways describe as disenfranchisement of groups unintentionally. And I think a lot of my older adults feel that a lot of comprehensive bleeding disorders care is tilted towards the pediatric side of the equation. We always need to remember that this is something that, that is important across the lifespan. There's no, there's probably a start point, but there's really no end point to a human being's in, investment in, involvement in, and interest in sexual health. As someone who wanted to play sports and be physical or just go to school and having not only severe hemophilia, but an inhibitor for many years, to this day, I have to contend with this ingrained sense that I don't trust my body. So... Did that translate to my sense of sexual capability and wholeness and willingness to be vulnerable? Absolutely. I did not trust my body. And therefore, I often, I love the point that was made earlier about how much of sexual health actually has to do with intimacy. Because as that intimacy would grow with someone, as it would maybe start to become physical, as it was maybe going to go to the next level, historically, that's when I would be out that's when I would start recoiling because now we're moving into an area that is more physical and it flares insecurities and distrust and anxieties. And I'm not safe here. I would much prefer to be in that courtship, flirty, intellectual, wondering, chasey stage when we cross to something more intimate. 
And that is still something to this day, even in a committed relationship with my wife for years, I do have to consciously remind myself to, to be vulnerable in certain areas of intimacy because it is not my habituated behavior. So that's one thing that came up. And then the other thing as Greg was speaking about how the chair can feel very tilted toward pediatric and that this is a topic for all ages. And now I'm at an age where if I want to continue to be reluctant, fearful, hesitant, et cetera, there may be windows closing for me. There was, I think Willie made the comment early on about sexual health being the ability to express freely and without limitation, idealistically anyway. Of course, we always have limitations. And I don't know, William is a fellow patient. You want to pick the baton up from there. No, thanks, Patrick. I think one of the things that actually occurred to me when we, we started this question was I, I've often seen bleeding in uh, sexual health and people with bleeding disorders approached with a great degree of humor. So the classic bleed, of course, for sexual activity in a person with hemophilia or bleeding disorders, the ileosuous bleed. Having an ileosuous bleed was actually perceived as a boast, as a great achievement. Oh, I got a really bad ileosuous bleed last night. But you know what? Underlying that, it says to me that those guys, they were having bleeding problems related to sex and they probably weren't dealing with them properly. So even from a young age, we are all aware that this has the potential to impact upon our sex lives. And, you know, maybe it's something that we need to engage with more openly. Older people are having sex. Um, we all need to make peace with that fact. Um, about a quarter of men over the age of 85 are sexually active. About 10% of women over 85 are sexually active. That's a lot of people. And I can tell you, whenever I see a patient, uh, come through, an older man come through in his 80s, whatever, and I see Sidenafil and to the uninitiated, that is Viagra, on their regular prescription, I just think, yes. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. So obviously within bleeding disorder population, a lot of that is based on hemarthropathy, arthritis. We've discussed that already, but erectile dysfunction is a massive issue older people. And I think we need to be serious about controlling um, cardiovascular risk factors, cholesterol, high blood pressure diet, exercise, obesity, diabetes. I think one of the most important words in uh, geriatric medicine is multifactorial. And the other important word is multidisciplinary. I think multifactorial and multidisciplinary. I agree those do both seem like important words when we're talking about aging persons with hemophilia in general. And I want to ask you, Dr. Baldwin, what about aging women with hemophilia? Anything in particular you'd like to highlight about sexual health and aging women with hemophilia? Yeah, so for a younger woman who's bleeding, that can really prohibit them feeling comfortable with, with intercourse in particular. And, and so we hear about that all the time. A lot of times we're struggling to have their periods get under control. And a lot of the medications we might give to help manage their periods might cause a lot of irregular or frequent bleeding, even if it's lighter and less. And I ask my patients, like, what kind of bleeding pattern is important to you? And sometimes what I hear is that they'd rather just have a predictable amount of time off so that they can have a normal life. And they'll take heavier bleeding during a period in exchange for that time off. And so we're thinking about bleeding pattern as an important component of period management. But, but aside from that, I just want to mention that people can have bleeding during sex for lots of other reasons other than having uh, a bleeding disorder. And so it's important that we don't write it off. 
and that we're doing an evaluation for cervical cancer and abnormal growth in the uterus as a result of lots of hormonal medications. I think uh, we need to think about more broadly about, um, especially females complaining of bleeding during sex, um, could be an injury um, sustained during sex even um, to the vagina. And and so I think that that becomes something that I think about more as people age and are having sex as the vagina, the vaginal tissue is getting more fragile and, and already is for many women in perimenopause and early menopause, a major problem with their sexual intimacy is just that the vaginal integrity is so much more fragile. So I think it's just something to keep on our radar to improve quality of life. As we start to draw to a close, If each of you had to design a research agenda that addressed our ability to optimize the delivery of comprehensive sexual health to our hemophilia population, what would you do? I think when it comes to looking for evidence-based assistance with how we deal with sexual health, first of all, those of us who are supremely comfortable with empirical data and empirical evidence and double-blinded, randomized, controlled studies need to get a lot more comfortable with qualitative research methods and methodology in order to adequately address this topic. You are not going to find the evidence you need in a randomized, double-blinded, controlled study. You have to look more broadly. And I think that most of the issues, if if I really assess where the bottleneck was, it's a communication breakdown of some description. And so I think we need to look even with outside of, outside of what you might call health research, healthcare related research, and look at evidence and supports that will improve our ability as educators and communicators. And that I think solves or goes a long way to solving a lot of the issues that tend to crop up and where they get stuck. Yeah, I, th- I think I agree entirely with what uh, Greg's saying. I think the first thing we need to know is what our center is actually doing. Are they assessing these things when they're intervening? How are they intervening? We need to know what the state of play is and current practice. And we need to know what people are doing with working and build research around that. I think this is almost so much of an unknown that we're almost the kind of pre-research stage where we need to know, we just need to take stock of where we're at now before we can even begin to know where we're going. So if you don't know where you're starting, you're not going to be able to find where you're going. Um, and certainly, yes, I agree with Greg. I think there'd be ethical problems about recruiting to such a um, double-blinded, randomized control study. So yeah, I mean, that's not the right answer in this case. I agree entirely. I think the research areas that I would think would be most helpful for understanding sexual health in the hemophilia treatment center context would be to assess knowledge gaps and myths and misperceptions among patients. And that would be probably survey research I think another area of research that could be really important is some implementation studies using utilizing tools from other disciplines, such as application of of general reproductive health education into the chronic medical condition context to see if that works in the HTC environment. These are all really valuable ideas. Thank you for sharing them. And William, fellow blood brother, is there anything else that you would like to share from the perspective of a professional treating aging persons with hemophilia before we close the episode? So I I certainly think one of the biggest areas of knowledge gaps 
um, bleeding disorders is we don't know how to manage cardiovascular um, comorbidities well at all. So you're, you're really weighing up very finely balanced thrombosis, hemostasis risk. Do I put somebody on an antiplatelet after a myocardial infarction? How long did I put them on it for? Somebody with atrial fibrillation. If you didn't have a coagulopathy, you would get anticoagulated. In a person with bleeding disorder, you're probably not going to. So are you going to accept a higher stroke risk for that? I suppose stepping back for me, a lot of the big areas for research priority are centered around comorbidity and aging well with hemophiliacs. It's just going to get muddier and messier. Uh, the latest data from the Dutch registry shows that people with hemophilia on average live to within six years of normal life expectancy if you're lucky enough to be born into a Western country with good treatment. So this population is going to win. I think all of what I've just said will impact upon sexual health. So do you have good cardiovascular health? Do you have good joint health? Is your dementia and your cognitive decline managed well as you get older? So for me, this is a big area of research. And I think one of the big challenges with it is that it's going to require big data sets, but we have a tiny population. I think there's going to be a very important registries to play in gathering some of this data. And, I, and I'm not aware that sexual health is really routinely measured in any registry um, globally. And that is a problem as well, um, thinking about the issues that we've discussed today. As a patient and thinking about the receiving of care and what next steps in data collection and research would be to help us move forward, I'm compelled by what William said there at the end about our population size is obviously quite small, which is a recurring theme on the Global Hemophilia Report and discussion about research into hemophilia, of course. And so for me, that amplifies the need to make sure that we are compelling in interesting ways patients to participate in studies in research. Let's recap. Today, we started with a story from Greg about a patient that, frankly, changed his life. And we discussed the need to talk about sexual health for persons with hemophilia in the context of the clinic. Our experts shared some of the best practices to discuss sexual health and highlighted the need to discuss it with patients of all severities and genders. Finally, we discussed some gaps in our current understanding of the topic and highlighted the need for more research while providing some ideas for what that research agenda might include. And with that, that is a wrap for this episode. Thank you all for listening and stay connected with the Global Hemophilia Report. You can subscribe to the Global Hemophilia Report wherever you get podcasts. Thank you to our featured advertiser, Sanofi. Thanks as well to our senior advisor, Dr. Donna D. McKelly, and to all of our contributors and supporters of this show. Thank you to our producer and the whole production team here at Bloodstream Media. My name is Patrick James Lynch, and you've been listening to the Global Hemophilia Report. Until next time. Sanofi seeks to expand the idea of what's possible for the hemophilia community. Take a deeper look at the science behind hemophilia and an important connection between factor activity levels and potential activities at levelsmatter.com.